Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review with fresh content every Thursday right here on Sportsnet 590, The Fan as well. And we're going to dive right into it because we have got a jam-packed show, and we love bringing into the conversation. He normally joins us a few times over the course of the season. Been covering the NBA for a long time with the New York Times and Sports Illustrated, Bleacher Report, and more. A senior NBA writer with the ringer, Howard Beck. Howard, we can hit on a lot of different things, but I'm going to start with what at least I think is most topical right now, Um, the dismissal of Adrian Griffin in Milwaukee. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, as have you, as have Jonesy. I'm I'm not naive to the whole thing, but I've got to say, when I see a guy losing his job with the second-best record in the East and he's tied for the second-best record in the NBA, and a guy who at least one of the star players actually wanted and openly talked about wanting in the offseason and ultimately got that guy. Uh, what the heck happened, you know, just barely halfway through the season to see Adrian Griffin out and Doc Rivers in? Yeah, I mean, in some respects it's shocking because, as you note, when you have one of the best records in the league and it seems like things have kind of stabilized and things are going well, yeah, there were some early bumps. But, hey, you know, it happens with a rookie head coach and you still have the record you're supposed to have more or less, and looks like you're on track. So it's shocking from that standpoint. Where it's not shocking is that, you know, they from the very beginning, there were warning signs. And a lot of people have reported, and I had heard the same thing earlier this year, that, yeah, Giannis didn't want Nick Nurse um, for whatever reasons, and he was partial to Adrian Griffin, so that's, you know, a big reason why Adrian Griffin gets the job. Um, but that... You know, when you see a guy of Terry Stotts' stature resign abruptly early in, in the going there, when you have veterans going to Adrian Griffin early in the season saying, hey, uh, your defensive schemes are not working for us. We need to go back to what we were doing under Budenholzer. Like, these, all these little warning signs were there. And maybe Adrian Griffin was just the wrong guy at the wrong time. You know, um, it, it, it sometimes works out really well where you have a rookie head coach taking over a team with championship aspirations, right? We saw that with Teron Liu in, in Cleveland when they fired David Blatt with a similarly very good record midseason. But Blatt just wasn't reaching the guys. He did not have LeBron James's uh, belief or the faith of, of the rest of their important players. And in a situation like this, that's almost always what it comes down to. And, you know, look, it has, you have to have the faith of the front office and ownership too, but like, if your stars, if your veterans are just don't believe in you, it, it's it's hard to keep that um, under wraps, and it's hard to navigate it. And at a certain point, and I listen, I admired Buck's management for this part of it. And it's always tough to say this about somebody losing their job, but you know they have a huge investment in that they've made in Damian Lillard and making that that trade, which has had obviously you know some some mixed results overall. Their defense has suffered. But they have Damian Lillard and they have Giannis Antetokounmpo and they 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 brought uh, you know they, they extended Giannis before the season. Your responsibility is to make sure that you maximize the window, and if you have reached the conclusion that maybe you made the wrong hire of a head coach, and you've got a chance to fix it midseason, record or no record, you know we've seen plenty of teams with great records in the regular season flame out in the postseason, including this Bucks team in their last year under Buttonholzer last year. If you don't believe that you have the right guy guiding it, you can't afford to waste any opportunities for Giannis and now Dame to go chase another title. So you do what you have to do. So the part where I admire it is that it, it, it's not easy to admit the mistake midseason, you know, six months or whatever after you hired a guy. And, you know, they, they, they obviously did what they felt they had to do. I have no doubt in my mind that the key players were on board with it. Yeah, you know, Howard, and that's where I was going to get to. Giannis last night, uh, or sorry, uh, in the first game that this Griffin was dismissed, uh, sits there on at the podium after the game and says, I'm not in meetings. I don't make those decisions. Right now the head coach is Joe Prunty. I mean, Howard, we've been around long enough. You, you were actually in L.A. You know, didn't Magic Johnson say the same thing? I don't get coaches fired. I, you know, I just play. I'm an employee. The, uh, no, that team, like the Cavs, that dismissed their coach midseason, that were championship caliber, went on to win a championship. Um, I, I don't know if culpability is, is, 
is the right word, but what what uh, role, what part do the do the players play in all of this? Where, as you said, maybe there was some communication breakdown, and management got skittish. They got scared and said, uh, "Our our you know our our players aren't happy. We're not so sure." There have been, as you said, warning signs. We're going to blow this up and make the change. Uh, you know, when Giannis sits up there and says that, Howard, there's part of me that says that my, my bogus meter starts to run a little bit higher. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we know the reality of the NBA and especially the NBA today. Stars have always kind of, you know, had a, a lot of influence and leverage, but never more so than in this era. And that doesn't mean that Giannis goes to them and says, fire the coach or that Dame does, or anybody else. It doesn't, it's never that simple or straightforward anyway. Um, you know, I, I like, and I don't think, look, it, this is not about like pointing fingers, right? Oh, who's to blame for Adrian Griffin getting fired? Probably Adrian Griffin is, or probably management is for hiring the wrong guy, or maybe Giannis is for having recommended him or, or advocating for him or whatever. It's a lot of different things. Um, but in terms of Giannis, like sitting there saying, like, I have no voice or responsibility in this, that, like, that's, it's just not believable because you don't, you don't literally have to be the one to go to them and say, do this for you to have had a hand in it. Um, You don't do anything in this league without consulting your superstar for most teams. You're not trading for Damian Lillard without going to Giannis and saying, Hey, this is something we think we're going to do. This is opportunity. What do you think? And Giannis says, you know, hell yes, basically. And you go and you do it, but you're absolutely asking him first because if you didn't want to play with Dame, you, you don't. You can't afford to upset your star. And he signed an extension right after that, which was you know the indication that he approved, right? Like all these things, you know, go hand in hand. So you know whether they asked Giannis, whether they just already knew what his feelings were, whether they just knew through channels, whatever it was, you can always do the inverse, which is this: Giannis is too important to fire the coach without knowing where he stood. And if, you, and if he was going to say, I only want Adrian Griffin, then you're not firing Adrian Griffin. That much we know for sure. Howard, um, when you look at the situation now kind of from 30,000 feet, um, there's no denying, and, and I, I want to make sure I, I, I articulate this properly, there's no denying they're still having a hell of a season. But from management's perspective, if they maybe hired the wrong guy, well, they also made a move, and it's it's hard to it's hard to say that going after Dame Lillard was a bad thing, but at the end of the day, the guy that they gave up the biggest prize, the biggest piece in getting Dame Lillard, goes to Portland, and then very quickly ends up with Milwaukee's number one rival, who oh yeah, by the way, has the best record in the East, the best record in the NBA right now. Does management need to kind of come under fire a little bit for maybe not necessarily hiring the right guy if they're switching their coach midway through and seeing, you know, one of the best defensive guards and an all-star player in Drew Holiday end up landing with the competition? But, okay, hey, we still got Dame. Like, wh- where does this land on management to any degree? <laughs> you know, um, I- I've thought about this, and I- I- I've played with this, this, this premise. Uh, I don't know if there's a definitive answer to this. There, there probably is not. If you could go back in time, if the if if John Horst, the GM of the Bucks, and ownership there, if they knew that the Drew Holiday for Dame Lillard swap was going to be followed by the Trailblazers rerouting Drew Holiday to their biggest rivals, the Celtics, and making the Celtics just absolutely dominant, would they still have done it? And I don't, I, I don't even know. I, I don't like if you knew the future, would you still do it? Because it's not just you know, losing Drew Holiday and all that he brings defensively and everything and swapping out essentially defense for offense and getting Dame Lillard. It's that your, your rivals got strengthened, but you didn't make that move. You know, the, the other party did, the, the Trailblazers did. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But just in terms of the trade-off that they made, I will say, like, at the time of the deal, I was touching base with a bunch of people around the league, and, you know, most people thought, like, yeah, wow, great, great move by the Bucks, and, yeah, sure, there's some trade-offs there, but pairing up Lillard and Giannis is going to be, you know, a home run for them. I did have, you know, one specific person I'm thinking of who had hit me back from from another team in the West who said, I think they've actually taken a step back now. I think they're really, really, really going to miss Drew Holiday and their defense is going to suffer for it. And I texted that person the other day just to say, hey, by the way, (laughs) kudos to you, you called it. Um, 
it's it's an interesting thing in the NBA, right? You've got five players on the floor at any given time, and sometimes a, a, a single player's influence or imprint is greater than any stats can can convey or that even sometimes the naked eye can convey. Losing one really great perimeter defender, like it's not the same as like taking out like a Rudy Go- like Rudy Gobert's a walking top five, top ten defense because of his size and the position that he plays in protecting the rim. A Drew Holiday type, you think, well, you know, we'll patch it up. We'll find other ways. We've still got Brooke Lopez and Giannis. We've got all this length. And Chris Middleton, when healthy, is a really great defender. And you probably think you can weather it and that it'll be more than outweighed by the added offensive punch of Dame. And especially, listen, in their defense, a lot of their struggles at, at times in, in postseason uh, situations have been down the stretch. There's certain limitations that Giannis has as an offensive orchestrator you needed somebody else who can just, you know, as Dame can, pull up from anywhere or, you know, draw the double team or get into the teeth of the defense. Like, there's a lot that Dame can do as a shot maker that Giannis can't. And and you and besides that, it's better to have kind of a one-two punch. So they didn't really have anybody else to play off of Giannis at that level. Um, and so you hope that that makes up for whatever you're losing defensively. But again, some things are hard to predict or measure and the the loss of drew holiday is one of those things like it's just really hard to game out at the time that you're making the deal and you probably think you can weather it they probably also figured you know what we'll we'll find a way we'll we'll make some other deal we'll do some two for one deal we'll find another like perimeter defensive player and they haven't been able to do that yet we'll see if they can pull that off before the trade deadline how does doc factor into this uh, howard in a sense that Look, a lot of people are raising an eyebrow because, uh, yes, Doc has a championship. Um, and, and I really kind of take the other side. People are saying, well, there have been 13 3-1 comebacks in NBA history. He's lost three of those leads. There have been, you know, he's lost three, two leads before in a series. I mean, you know, Eric's a Buffalo Bills fan, so I can say this. Yeah, they've lost four Super Bowls, but they got to four. So for all the people crying Doc down about losing those leads – you got to get those leads first. Um, what does he do to go in there and try and well, rectify the defense? Because that's the thing that everybody's pointing to that is the glaring issue more than anything else. And how quickly can he get that done? Because he doesn't have Sam Cassell and Ty Lue and Tom Thibodeau beside him the way he did in, in past years in Boston. He's going in with basically an inherited staff. Yeah, that part's tough. That part's tough. Like, you know, you, you know, coaches really, they've got a comfort level with their guy. You just named a bunch of them. And, you know, you know, Doc's staffs have obviously changed over the years from one place to the next. But, like, you, you usually have some guys who are, are your trusted confidants and the people who you lean on for specific things, offensively, defensively, or just whatever, your sounding board. And so coming in and inheriting somebody else's staff, you know, I think there was a report that they're going to, you know, try to work with him on getting, you know, some other guys on there. But like, you know, most of his guys are are gainfully employed elsewhere right now. No one's just going to let somebody out of their contract in the middle of the season. So that part's tough. Um, listen, let's start with just the the the, the thirty thousand foot view on on head coaching and especially coaching superstars. If the stars don't believe in you, you're cooked. And so let's just take it as a given that part of the reason why this has all happened is that they they no longer believed in Adrian Griffin and they and that they're going to believe in, in Doc because Doc has the ring, has the track record, has the track record with superstars in, in particular at, at multiple stops. You, you know, half the battle is just making sure that the guys buy what you're selling, whatever the offensive scheme is, whatever the defensive scheme is, whatever you're asking, if they don't believe in you and what you're, you're telling them to do, you're just done. So Doc has that on day one because of, of everything he's established in this league. And we can, you know, pick apart a lot of people's records. Oh, the three to one stuff, all that. Yeah, fine. Great. He's also had a ton of success in this league. And I think players in particular respect him, maybe more than pundits do dwelling on the three to one stuff. Um, if you were to go through all the guys he's coached, all the future hall of famers, I, I think probably the majority of them would actually support him. Like, James Harden might be a dissenter. Ben Simmons surely would be a dissenter. But I think Joel Embiid liked Doc just fine and, and believed in him. I think, you know, Pearson Garnett, for sure. Um, 
and, 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 you know, I don't know. I, th- I think he and Chris Paul were fine mostly. Like, that was a weird team. They had their own internal locker room stuff. Like, their chemistry was just funky, the Lob City Clippers. But, um, you know, I, 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 think, I think Doc helps steady the ship there. What he'll do defensively, scheme-wise, I, I, I always go back to this. Like, if your defense is, is uh, faulty, usually it's because you don't have the right players. Like, I think players determine defense more than coaches do. And, and we're seeing that here, right? Like, it's not – even if Budenholzer were still there, swapping out Drew Holiday for Damian Lillard was going to have an impact. And, you know, maybe, maybe they would be better now if they'd kept the same coach with, with the same approach. But the players matter, and their skill sets matter. Howard, that might be a perfect time for us to transition over to the Toronto Raptors, <laughs> whose defense has not been great. I know they're in a much different spot and in a much different arc right now than, than the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, but also with a, a rookie head coach and now obviously having made two very substantial, meaningful trades over the course of the last month um, and maybe more to come in the next couple of weeks as we approach the deadline. What's your sense of what Toronto still may do, where they're at, and how long or quick this retool, retweak, rebuild may be for Masai Ujiri and company. Guys, I'm going to do the thing that I always hate doing. I've probably even done it on your show. That the worst radio thing in the world you can do is to ever say, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's an honest answer, man. It's an honest answer. We don't mind that. They, they did the thing that they had to do and that a lot of felt – people felt was overdue right they finally you know you know tore off the band-aid and you know moved on from og and then moved on from pascal and and you know they are firmly in this new era with scotty barnes as as the center of their universe and you know um but there are more moves to make right like you got players back in one deal you got uh, draft picks in the other deal you've got the bruce brown piece and whether you know you want to reroute him what's the overall vision is is scotty barnes absolutely the guy you think you can be it can be your number one and are you just looking for his number two now or are you are you aiming even higher is there another number one out there to pair him with how quickly do you want to get back into some sort of playoff contention um i i I think now that they've made the, the the most dramatic and the most difficult moves yeah it's hard you know masai ujiri spoke as he always does very eloquently about how hard it is just you know competitively, emotionally, relationship-wise, all of that, to make the moves that he made. You take a deep breath after that. You see where you're at. You see what kind of offers are coming in for the players on your roster. They've got a lot of players that are appealing to, to contending teams. And, you know, but they, the, the big moves were already made. The, the rebuilding part of it, that's, like, that sometimes takes a lot more time and maneuvering. Um, it's not going to happen all at once. Uh do you think you're going to do it through the draft? Do you think you have a chance to, to maybe do it via free agency at some point? Um, those things have to, to, to kind of just play out right now. And in the meantime, you know, look, they've got some, you know, a, a great young player in Scotty Barnes and some other really good, interesting players. And R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly have looked good there. And, you know, it, it's, it's going to take some time to, to kind of craft the vision for what comes next. Howard, um a market that you're familiar with, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, ever since that glorious win in the in-season tournament where people were maybe putting the cart before the horse and, you know, everybody's saying, well, you know, you win the in-season tournament, you should have a playoff. Well, the Lakers would have taken that and run with it because they're, they're, they're right, they're teetering right in that area right now. But, like, how does Rob Polinka again, try to pull a rabbit out of his hat and then I'm looking cross town at the other guys that everybody snickered when they got James Harden. They lost, you know, four or five in a row or whatever. They've figured it out. So L.A.'s got – there's some polarity there in L.A. with the two teams. Yeah. Um, it's funny because we've seen that balance of power shift back and forth a handful of times over the last 20 years. Um, the Clippers still haven't broken through and won a championship. You know, the Lakers, you know, obviously got another one with LeBron. Uh, The Lakers are still number one in the hearts and minds of most people in Southern California, no matter what the Clippers do or no matter how much the Lakers struggle. Um, But it it also, 
when you're the Lakers, like it's everything is championship or bust, and so it's 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 really difficult because you have the adoration and and loyalty of of just the vast majority of basketball fans in the region, but they expect the world. Um, the Lakers have some work to do. Uh, the and the Clippers are in great shape, and the Clippers are absolutely a contender to come out of the West. And they're going to move into a, a, a gorgeous new building in uh, in the Lakers' former backyard in, in Inglewood uh, later this year. Um, and yet, at the end of it, I, I guarantee, like the, the the Lakers will still be the number one team in town, no matter what their record is, or no matter who they have. So it's it's an interesting dynamic. It always is. Uh, I am the, the Lakers are one of the teams that I think I'm keeping the closest eye on over the next couple of weeks before the trade deadline because I just don't think they can afford to stand pat. Howard, we appreciate the time. As always, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting again sometime soon. All the best. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you soon. That was senior NBA writer from The Ringer, Howard Beck. All right, we're going to shift gears a little bit here, but we're actually going to bring another writer into this. I mean, an author, but I know him as, not just a friend, and, and Jonesy as well knows him as, a senior producer at sports. Uh, let me Let me restart that again. Three, two, and one. That was senior NBA writer from The Ringer, Howard Beck. All right, we're going to shift gears here. We're going to go from one writer to, well, a new writer, an author. I know him as a senior producer at Sportsnet. Yes, he's a colleague, folks, but this is a fantastic story, literally and figuratively, that we, Paul and I, wanted to share. A little bit earlier, I had a chance to chat with my friend, my colleague uh, from Sportsnet, Paul Bromby, and, and Paul is also not just a senior producer, he's a former player, he's a national champion, 1999, 25-year anniversary, actually, of his national championship, his CIAU championship is coming up this March, but Paul had a chance to write a book, a children's book, and he, you know, he'll tell you more about it right now as we dive into his story that he authored, The Backpack. Paul, thanks for joining us this week, and, and it's obviously something that's off the beaten path a little bit from our usual kind of just NBA talk, but certainly with your history in basketball and your history in sports and the fact that, you know, it's it's part of your life. You're not only a, uh, you know, a producer at Sportsnet, but you still play the game. I know you still coach the game, um, and hence the tie into this, let alone the fact that obviously this past week, um, the spotlight gets shone on mental health more than maybe any other week uh, uh, in the year. Uh, with Bell Let's Talk. I know that's the competition, but it's a great initiative. But it's also one of those things that I know you've been spearheading for a while that this isn't just a day or a week that we should be talking about it. It's every day, fortunately or unfortunately. It's every week, it's every month, it's every year. And it's something that is very real for somebody like you. And, and, and having given that kind of lead up, I suppose, maybe you can now explain to the audience and to the listeners like where the backpack started and what the whole root of this idea and this book was for you. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me on. Um, the backpack is, is a book. It's a children's book. And I want to create it uh, with Jason Jerosha and junior storytellers. I want to create it to be a tool to be used in the homes um, for children, for parents who may have mental illness in the home. Uh, my mom was manic depressive bipolar uh, and it's just, you know, when she, when I was growing up, I had to kind of take care of her a lot and I worried about her a lot. And, uh, the backpack is a metaphor for the worries and the burden that, you know, the burdens that we worry about in our lives. And I think everybody, whether you have mental illness or mental health issues in the home, you can, we can all relate to stress and worry. And, uh, the backpack was just used as a metaphor, you know, to try and make it a little easier for children to understand. And in my case, my mom's bipolar manic depressive disorder was not my burden to carry. And uh, so the story is, is basically about me growing up playing basketball and how, you know, worrying about her at times and different times would affect me personally in school and friendships and in life. And in particular on the basketball court, where sometimes I would see her in the crowd and I'd start to stress and worry and my game would suffer. Not to make it as an excuse, but it would affect me in ways, not always on the basketball court, because quite honestly, the basketball court was a, was a sanctuary for me. It was a place to get away from the worry. Paul, I'm I, I going to ask you this, and if it's, if it's crossing a line, then, then tell me it's crossing a line and check me on it. And if I'm using the wrong words even, then check me on that as well. When did you first realize that maybe either you or your mom or just your everyday life was 
different or not the same maybe as your buddies and that you were carrying this this backpack, this sort of stress and burden that maybe some other kids weren't, or at least not to the extent that you were? It's a great question. And uh, I tell my story from my personal story. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a professional, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm just telling it through my story. And um, I think for me, I always, and again, I might use words that would offend some as well, but I, I knew that my mom wasn't, I use in quotations, normal at a very young age. I remember, you know, ambulance coming to the home and taking her to the hospital as she would have a manic episode or a nervous breakdown, as we would call it. But back then in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up and a kid, there was a lot of stigma surrounding mental health. And, and it was, um, you know, in, in many ways, we looked upon as a black sheep in the family. And there was a lot of shame and embarrassment that I felt um, just by seeing how people would treat my mom and seeing when she was sick and kind of the strange looks in public at times. Um, it was so it, it was hard not to wear it as my backpack because, you know, as little boys, you know, our moms and our dads are our are, are heroes and idols. And so seeing how she was treated in public at times and seeing how she was treated by different people really did affect me. And so I would say that at a young age, I was aware, um, but I hid it very well when I got to high school. There was, uh, I remember a really good friend of mine, Jason Darling, whose son uh, plays with the Clippers organization right now, Nate Darling. He came up to me at my mom's funeral and said, was your mom sick? And it was incredibly shocking to me that I had hid it from such a good friend uh, and really sad that I, that I felt I had to embarrass, uh, um, hide it because of my embarrassment and shame of the illness. So, Paul, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, too, that, that the, the basketball court was kind of your, your way to, to, to get away and a bit of a sanctuary for you. But at the same time, I've got to imagine, especially at a young age, but heck, at any age, whether you're you know 12 or whether you're 22, to be able to flip that switch and just shut it on and off. How did you do that? And, and, and you know, did you have help with doing that? Or was it just something that you grew to adapt to on your own? That's also a great question, Eric. I think, you know, when I see people like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love come out and discuss their mental health, there really is for them. There's a real pressure to perform. I think, you know, I didn't always feel a pressure to perform. I felt like I was very lucky to be on a team or on the court. Um, and so for me, it was just, I was super excited to be out there. And quite honestly, I was ultra competitive, um, very, very competitive. So when I stepped between the lines, my goal was just to beat anybody I was playing against. So I get, you know, I think it was also very much just something, like I said, as an escape, it was me to get away from all those troubles and burn off that energy and really, you know, just put a goal towards a team goal and winning. And uh, I was very lucky. A lot of my coaches um, became father figures. I can name a couple of Rick Plato's at Dow now, Ross Quackenbush, who was my coach at St. Mary's. He's retired. Um, just a lot of them, Hugh McDonald, Nick Morris, my high school coaches, they became uh, father figures. And when, they would see me spiral a bit or maybe lose my patience and get angry on the court. I think they understood where a lot of that frustration was coming and gave me a space to be a little more animated and frustrated than I'm sure we wanted to see people at that age. But uh, I definitely appreciate all that support I, I get from the coaches along the way. Yeah, you know what, Bomber? I was looking at your foul totals and you know, and, and, and looking up your bio and stuff. I I think you carried some of that frustration out on some of your t- on some of your opponents. Fifty one fouls, man, in your senior year and your last year. Like, come on, man! It's a, I, I'm saying that jokingly. No, no Probably doubt, no doubt. Is I know I said a lot of vicious back screens. <laughs> um, in writing this book. Um, I, I've got to imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've got to imagine it was very therapeutic for you. But was there also uh, at any point, um, I don't know, a, a, a feeling of, of guilt and pride mixed together in a way? Like you're, you're putting yourself out there, you're putting your mom out there, you're telling your story through, through, you know, through the eyes of the character, but it's clearly it's you and it's your experiences. Uh, did, 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 did you find it to be a difficult process to actually put it on paper and to, to be that vulnerable to do so? Absolutely. I think um, I shared the book with a, with a lady um, named Yolanda, who also has some mental health struggles of her own. And um, she was very quick to point out that we have put my mom in a light that, you know, we're not showing how, difficult it was for her to just show up every day and maybe her normal was just getting out of bed some days. And I think talking to her 
was almost like talking to my mom and her being her voice. So there was a lot of guilt. Uh, I had a lot of resentment and anger towards my mom growing up. And I will say part of this healing is showing love for my mom and showing, you know, that it wasn't her fault and it wasn't my fault. It was just a situation that neither of us really knew how to handle at that time. And I think, um, you know, even the fact that I graduated high school, graduated university and, and have a, you know, a career at Sportsnet, I'm incredibly lucky. And she was the foundation to get me to those points in my life. And uh, in writing this book, it's, it's a lot of, I just want, if there's one kid out there that was like me back in the, you know, back in the eighties, I had nobody to talk to about this. And if they read this book and understand that there are other people going through this and they're not alone, even if there's one child that reads that, I think I've accomplished everything I want to accomplish with this book. It's just being there for somebody to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and the light at that end of the tunnel is actually pretty beautiful. And, and it's uh, it's a good place that, that you'll get through whatever struggles there are. Well, Paul, listen, we've been buddies for a while. I know you've got many, many, many friends a lot closer than me. I never had a chance to meet your mother, but I have no doubt that she would be looking at you with a lot of pride right now in terms of the, the man you become, the employee and boss you've become, the father you've become, the coach you've become, the leader that you've become overall. So, uh, so i got to imagine she's, she's looking down with a lot of pride right now, man. And uh, I appreciate you coming on, and, and best of luck with the book and, 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 and everything else. All the best, man. It means a lot. Thank you, Eric. And if anyone wants to order the book, they're up for pre-orders. It's on juniorstorytellers.com, and uh, you'll see the backpack there. I really appreciate everything, Eric. appreciate your friendship. Loves having that conversation with my friend, my colleague from Sportsnet, senior producer, and, hey, former CIAU, CIS national champion in 1999, Paul Bromby. He gave you all the details about the book. We'll also post it on social media and whatnot if you are interested in ordering the backpack, a fantastic idea and and clearly a great message from that book. So thanks again to Paul for joining us. We're going to step aside for the break. When we come back, uh, a former friend of the show and a former very familiar face in Toronto, uh, Nate Bjorkren, will join us next on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Thanks again to Paul Bromby and Howard Beck for joining us in the first half of the show. But we bring into the conversation right now uh, as I said, going into break, a friend of the show, but a familiar face as well. Former Raptors assistant coach, former head coach of the Indiana Pacers, and assistant coach of the senior men's national team, Nate Bjorkren. Nate, great to have you. Great to be able to chat with you again. And uh, I, I am firmly sitting with my Canada basketball board member hat on, and as Eric would say, the red pom-poms waving. Um, we, we just saw the announcement at July 10th, T-Mobile Arena, Canada, USA, and uh, a guy that you know, Scotty Barnes, has been named to the USA pool of, I, I believe, 41 players. But it, it, it's funny because Grant Hill was in town doing a game for NBA Today, NBA TV, and he said, everybody wants to come and save the day. And I think that probably happened because of uh, what went on with, with, uh, with Team Canada at the, uh, at the World Cup. How excited are you for, uh, you know, I know we've got some stuff before that, but how excited are you for Paris and, and the prospects of what's to come there? Yeah, very excited. And, and thanks for having me, you know, on here again. I love, uh, love talking with you guys, but we're very excited. It's something that we are really spending a lot of time on as well. You know, you said the announcement in, in July of, of the exhibition game, but, you know, we're coming off a World Cup where we where we got that bronze medal and heck of a group of players, heck of a group of guys and and uh, the entire staff and coaches and everybody. Um, so we're very excited, looking forward to the uh, the Olympics coming up here in Paris. Nate, the, the, the process of leading up to that game in, in July, let alone to Paris itself, it, it, it's going to, you know, that's, that's almost like its own entity. But then if we, we look at the kind of very immediate future as well, a couple of important games coming up in, in basically a month in February for a whole different set of marbles. And this is, I, I got to get in my soapbox for a second. This is where I get kind of angry, let alone confused with FIBA and their process where you're qualifying for one thing while you still haven't even started another thing and there's another qualifying for another thing. It's like you've got so many things overlapping, but at the end of the day, it does mean it's more basketball and it does mean it's more opportunities for players to play and for programs to excel and achieve and, and, and continue to build. 
and it's been for me as a fan let alone as a as a broadcaster it's been fun to see the process of how many different people from coaches to assistants to players to trainers that are now involved because it's almost like it's a whole different crew every three to four months based on all these different windows for all these different tournaments and and qualifiers and whatnot yeah you're you're right on a, on a number of things there uh we do we have uh a window coming up where we play two games, you know, for our national team. We play Nicaragua twice. And what this is, is, you know, like we've talked about already, we've qualified for the Olympics this summer. But now, these windows in February, it's the long process that tries to qualify us for the Olympics in 2028. So it, it it's never stopped. So as a coach and as a player, it's awesome. You know, we get to play games, and, and what I just keep telling the guys is you just win the game in front of you, and everything else takes care of itself. So we do. We go over to St. Catharines. Uh, training camp starts on February 19th, and we play Nicaragua on the 23rd in St. Catharines. And this group of players that will be representing Canada, it's a group of guys that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned some, some of these other countries and teams around the world are – changing players, changing guys a lot. But we've, we've done a good job over the last four years that I've been here, four or five years that I've been a part of the program, to where during these winter windows, yeah, we can't get any of the current NBA players, but we have a heck of a group of guys, outstanding players, some that have played a little bit in the NBA, but most of them are just all over the world playing in different countries, but we come together you know, a couple times a year to play these games to be able to get us to the big games like the Olympics that we talked about. So this group of guys, they they work so hard. They pour everything they got into their country, and it sure is fun coaching it. It's a real, it's a real pure form of of great basketball that that uh, that I'm really looking forward to. Nate, and and you know, you said something that's really key, and I've always said this. I remember the. The devastating loss to the Czech Republic in, in, in Victoria and just talking about wiring our guys to play for the country. The commitment is there now after, you know, a bunch of guys said, yes, I'll be on the cycle for four years. But guys who couldn't, you know, and I kind of liken this to what Grant Hill said when, you know, LeBron was tweeting after they lost the bronze medal and all these guys want to ride in and save the day now. And it's not the case with Canada, but there are names, uh, players out there who may be able to help. You you never know because of the chemistry. They might be able to strengthen the team. Uh, You know, I'm sure you're going to have some input as, as a coach. You know, you've worked with guys. Some guys won't even be playing in the Olympics, and they helped you get there. You, you, you stood on their backs to get there. What do you do with guys that, that are saying, putting their hand up now and saying, okay, I'm good to go now that we're in the Olympics? Like, how do you treat that situation, Nate? Because people will say, like, well, you're going to the Olympics. Why don't you choose this guy? Why don't you take this guy on board now that he can play? It's, it's a tricky situation, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important question. You know, Rowan Barrett, our GM, Jordy Fernandez, the head coach, you know, in, in the summertime of the national team, like, we do. There's, there's going to be a lot of conversations discussing which players to take because right now we have a good problem, right? We, there's a lot of momentum going into Canada basketball. And there are, there are going to be a lot of guys who are raising their hand and say, I want in, I want in. But what you can't do is forget about the guys that got you there. I mean, there's, there's, there's guys, you know, and that I'm about to coach here in February that haven't missed a thing, not one thing, not one practice, not one game over the last four years. And there's a lot of uh, thought and respect that goes into selecting those guys as well to be a part of the final 12 that represents our team and our country. So, there is. There's a lot of thought into that, and, and loyalty goes a long way, and, and, and dedication goes a long way. Now, you may there, there's guys that have been in and out of the of the program over many of the years that that have come and gone, and 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 they deserve a, a shot too. So, to answer your question, it's a good problem to have. I know we have a great core group of guys that represented 
Canada very well in the World Cup, you know, getting that bronze medal. And I'm telling you something, we're, we're, it's just the beginning. There's more and more momentum building for Team Canada. We are going to be so tough to beat with the commitment and the hard work and the talent of the players that are in this country. Uh, I'm telling you, we're going to be tough to beat. Again, that game is coming up on February 23rd in uh, St. Catharines against Nicaragua. Tip-off just after 7 o'clock. You can go to ticketmaster.ca for tickets uh, or, or call the uh, the venue as well and, and get information on tickets. You can find more information on the uh, Canada Basketball website as well at basketball.ca. Uh, Nate, let's switch gears a little bit maybe from Canada, but it, it's, a, it's a kind of quick and easy segue because as we talk to you, a guy that – you know, has been a longtime coach, whether it be as an assistant or as a head coach. One of your friends, one of your colleagues, unfortunately this week losing his job in Milwaukee, and Adrian Griffin, in 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 many ways, shapes, and forms. Fortunately or unfortunately, you've kind of been you know down that path before too. The sort of idea of sliding from assistant to head coach, and maybe you can talk to us a little bit, Nada, as to how difficult that transition can be both from an X's and O's standpoint, from a personality standpoint, from a dealing with management standpoint, and all of the intangibles that go into being an assistant versus a head or a head versus an assistant and, and all of that that gets thrown into the pot. Sure, no problem at all. Um, first of all, um, AG is a very good friend of mine, like you mentioned already. You know, we spent a good five years together you know, four or five years together with the Toronto Raptors. And when you work with somebody that closely, obviously you, 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 you get to know them so well, you spend so much time and there's, and you're together every single day, um, you know, in the basketball season and then some, but AG's a number one, he's a great person. And number two, he's a great coach. And I was, I was, you know, I was, I was surprised to hear the news. I was sorry to hear the news. Um, I was hoping they would have given him more time, you know, just to, you know, he coached uh, just over 40 games. And, but I tell you something, he's a great coach. He was doing what he believed in, um, you know, and it's tough. It's tough. And, and like you said, people, people don't understand until you are in that seat. And when you're a head coach, you cannot imagine what it's like. You can't, it's, it's, you know, I've gone from assistant to head coach at different times in my life. And the movement, just being the man in charge of it, has so many more responsibilities than just being, you know, the basketball coach of the team. You're managing so many different things. And, and there's a lot that comes at you during the course of a day and the course of the season. And it's something, it's something every day. And it makes you better, you know, and as a coach, you're going to continue to get better and better, and you have to continue to learn every day. And I know AG is better because of this, and Coach Griffin just keeps getting better and better. He'll get another chance at it. He is so well-respected around the league, played in the league for many years, was an assistant coach for many years. You know, when we won that championship together in Toronto, and you can never take that away. And that, I'm telling you guys, that's hard to do. It is so hard to do. You go through a regular season, you know, that ends in early April, and then you're playing three more months of playoff, playoff basketball, April, May, and June. And for us to, you know, to win that title and, you know, with Coach Nurse, Coach Griffin, all the other great coaches we had on our staff, you know, it meant a lot. And, and, and that's what he has, and he can still build off that. But his, co- his coaching days aren't done. Uh, Nate, it's, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, having been, uh, having covered the team since day one, you just look at uh, – what a Herculean, as you said, task that is. And, and once it's done, that kind of, it never expires. Like you said, it, it, it's, never, it's never an issue. What is that like when you move from assistant coach to head coach and the team has those expectations? Milwaukee did it the year after Toronto. And, and so, you know, sure they would say, well, that guy knows he's been there. We were recently there. Maybe he can take us again. Now they change course in the middle. But how much is that is, is I, I don't know if pressure is the right word, and maybe the expectations, Nate. How much are they intensified when there's a championship window and management feels it may be finite? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 
fingers point at the head coach and everything goes to the head coach and it weighs on his or her shoulders. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's people, that's what's great about having some head coaching experience because it makes you a better assistant because you know what the head coach is going through at that particular time. As an assistant, you want to try to be a problem solver and take care of the things that, that, that the head coach doesn't have to take care of every day. Because you do. I mean, you guys have nailed it with the questions. There, there, is, a, there is a ton of responsibility to the head coach. You know, and there should be. You're, you're, the, you're the head coach of an NBA team. There's a lot that comes with it. There's a lot of good that comes with it. There's a lot of bad that comes with it. It's very, very challenging. You know, and, and, and AG has won one, and that stuff does take you a long way. It was just unfortunate, you know, that they just – they. I wish they would have given him some more time because I know he's going to keep getting better and better as he goes. Um, but they didn't. You know, it's tough for coaches. It's tough for players. And you gotta you got to just try to learn from it. And when you get your next crack at it, you try to do better because, because I know – Coach Griffin is looking at himself and saying, you know, liking the things that he did and did well, and he's probably wishing there was things that he would have done differently. And that happens with everybody every day in the coaching profession, every day. And you just have to keep learning and, and fighting and moving on at the best that you can. Hey, Nate, I, 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 I say this and I ask this with the utmost respect. You're coming from a perspective as well where you went through – something similar i i don't know what's fact fiction or otherwise we haven't talked about it uh, you know and i don't know if you care to mention anything about it but whatever went down with with how things unfolded unfortunately for you in indiana using what you just said a couple of minutes ago are you a different coach and a potentially better coach whether it be as a head coach or as an assistant since that time in indiana when you had a chance to see okay maybe i could have done this different or no i liked what i did there and i like that i stuck with with my morals and my ways for this but maybe i could have tweaked that like how different are you as a a coach let alone even as a as a person you know raptors assistant versus pacers head coach versus you know assistant and head coach now with the national program how have things changed for you yeah, it, it, it does. It does change you. You do. And I, I went through everything that I just mentioned about Coach Griffin. I did it with myself. I did. I had a chance to look back at myself and the things that things that I liked that I did, things I wish I would have done differently. But again, I learned so much. And you learn so much by going through that. And it's hard. And there's nothing easy about it. Like I've mentioned a couple times already. But then when you go through something like that, you just try to, you, you try to find, you know, what makes you happy. And, and I know that I am extremely happy and proud and honored to be able to coach the Canadian national team. It is, it is such, such an honor. My kids, my family, our time in Canada, I, I just cannot tell you how proud I am to wear the Canada gear that I have everywhere I go and for people to stop me and ask me, you know, oh, how, what's going on with Canada? How's the team? What are you guys doing? You know, and to talk about the Olympics and to talk about the windows, that stuff makes me happy. I'm, I'm proud to, to talk about that stuff. So, so AG will find, you know, what, what makes him happy. And, 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 he's, and he's, he did a great job. He did a great job and he's done a great job and he will continue to do a great job. And going through this will make him a better coach. Hey, Nate, you, you talk about uh, movements and stuff. I look at what uh, Coach Nurse is doing uh, in Philadelphia and how he has, you know, I, I, arguably Joel Embiid is having a better season this year than he did last year when he was the MVP. Um, how does, how does I mean, Nick's an experienced head coach. Uh, you've been right with him at times. What, what happens when a guy goes into a new situation like that as a coach? He's got an existing team. Uh, what, what kinds of things are you looking at to, you know, to turn this thing around? I, like I said, Philadelphia, is, they are a real threat this year for a title, and they are, you know, they are looked at and recognized as a contender. Uh, give us a kind of a window into the thinking of, 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 of Coach Nurse when he gets to Philadelphia and what he's been doing with them. Yeah, first of all, you know, we spent so much time together. Great coach, great team. But here's, here's what I thought of first when he asked me that question. Like, 
we spent so many times, you know, Coach Nurse, myself, AG, the guys we've talked about on this call, and obviously the rest of the Toronto Raptors staff and players, but we spent so much time on going into big-time battles with Philadelphia. You guys remember, you remember the big games that we played, the, the Game 7 shot at home. I mean, that team, just think of that team. Um, back then it was, you know, Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler and J.J. Redick and Ben Simmons at the one. I mean, you talk about a heck of a lineup that we took down on that day and in that series. So Coach Nurse knew the team he was going to. He knew the strengths and weaknesses of Joel Embiid. We spent so much time on watching that great player play, playing against him, watching film, having discussions. He knows how to get Joel and Joel Embiid the ball and where to get him the ball. You know, Maxi is a Maxi on that team is he's he's hard to handle as well. So he goes into you know coaching the team, but his but his preparation and his his experience of coaching against the 76ers in the past has really helped him be the current head coach of that team. And they are they're having a they're having a great season. They're going to be tough to beat. They're going to be absolutely. They're in the. There's one of. They are one of those teams that's in that small window that can say, "Hey, we got a real chance to win this thing this year," you know. And they got they got a great roster and and one heck of a coach. Nate, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, love chatting with you again, and and look forward to seeing you and the Canadians in action in February. That game again, folks, coming up uh, in St. Catharines against Nicaragua. You can get more information at basketball.ca and. Uh, no doubt we'll have a chance to hopefully talk either before or after that, Nate, and uh, and we wish you all the best. I really appreciate you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on again. That was Nate Bjorkren, assistant coach of the senior men's national team, and, well, he will be acting head coach for these games that are coming up in February for Team Canada as well. And, of course, you remember Nate as the uh, longtime assistant coach of the Toronto Raptors alongside Nick Nurse, former head coach of the Indiana Pacers as well. A jammed show for you folks. A great show this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Nate Bjorkren, Howard Beck, and Paul Bromby for joining us. Also, special thanks to producer and technical director Austin Mackey. For Paul Jones, I'm Eric Smith. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, review, share it as well, and tune in every Thursday for fresh content. It's Smith & Jones.